Let's just go back to bed. Welcome to Originality, the podcast about creativity and exploring the roots of creative genius. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined as ever by... Kimber Bradford. Ha ha. I don't know why I said that in just a minute. <laughs> oh, so Most Tempest. people call me Tempest. <laughs> already a day it's already oh it's such a day and we're recording this at not even one o'clock in the afternoon like I feel like I've been awake for 73 years I actually woke up at like 8 30 and it's just never going to end the days never end but we have an exciting episode for you I am um, excited because yeah. I saw some of these some of these show notes I haven't had a chance to listen in advance as I usually do but uh and and something about someone called Kimber. So it's going to be interesting mm-hmm. to see where that goes. <laughs> yes. So um, for this episode, we are interviewing Kelly Thompson, who is uh, the writer of many different things, um, including the comic Gem and the Holograms, which it's if you... So good. And if you have been uh, following Aline and I, for a while, then you know that we were both part of a podcast called The Gemcast, where we like rewatched the Gem and the Holograms cartoon. And we talked about this comic when it first came out. And so it was really exciting for me to to get to talk to Kelly as um, a big fan of Gem and of these comics. But she writes, oh, oh my gosh, so many different things. And I will let her introduce herself in a minute, talk about some of the things she writes about. But I, this is the reason why I was like, super excited when she said yes to this interview because I've been wanting to talk to her actually for a really long time. And so, hooray. So should we go to that interview or that interview? Should we? <laughs> I'm dying. Oh, so let's, let's play your introduction. Uh, I'm Kelly Thompson and I'm a comic book writer and novelist, although it's been mostly comics these days. Uh, my big projects right now are the Ghostbusters Answer the Call series, um, Hawkeye, uh, Rogue and Gambit. Um, I've got two new things coming up that are really exciting. Uh, one with Marvel, one somewhere else, but I cannot say what they are yet. I'm also desperately trying to finish, uh, the second novel in my story killer series which is uh, easier said than done holy moly i didn't know she had so much that's a lot yeah. that is a lot of projects yeah <laughs> it is a lot and it's awesome um and it's funny because you know as i said i had started following kelly when the gem and the holograms comic came out and it actually because i think kelly actually heard of or was listening to our podcast oh no right and so it's like (laughs) she was listening to us and then she followed me on twitter i'm like oh my gosh she's following me on twitter and so i started following her back and that's you know how i knew that she was involved in all this stuff you know she was like look here's the cover of the the ghostbusters thing i'm like what here's the cover of there here's some inside stuff from hawkeye what are you kidding me this is awesome and then the (laughs) The cover of Rogue and Gambit, I think it's number two, that she had been tweeting like this uh, in, in November. I can't stop looking at it because it is the, I mean, obviously she's not the artist of that cover, but like just that the cover conveys 
so much about what I love about Rogue and Gambit and their relationship and like specific aspects of it, like all in a cover. And, and I can only feel like that must, you know, reflect what's going on inside that book. And so I'm just like, I haven't, I don't read comics. I don't read comics, but I'm, I think I'm going to have to buy Rogue and Gambit. Do it. Oh my gosh. So, so many awesome things. So yeah, so I'm very excited about that and, and very excited about um, all the other stuff that Kelly is doing. And so I uh, wanted to just, and, and also just the fact, it took me a while to realize that she also wrote novels on top of writing comics. And so I wanted to talk to her about that and about like the differences between like novel writing and comic writing and also the the difference of working for a comic where you have to you know, work within a world that already exists uh, the way that you would at like Marvel or DC or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing I found interesting that I, the clip I wanted to play for you was uh, the, where she talks about how she has to arrange her life in order to have um, like maximum creative time. And it even says on her website somewhere, I think something about how she doesn't ever want to get out of her pajamas, which, you know, plus one, I'm down with that goal. (laughs) And so, so she talks uh, uh, a little bit about basically what she has to do in order to like get everything done in the day that she needs to do. I totally agree. I mean, I've, I'm i I'm a big fan of like, putting all my errands and or things on like one day and and not leaving the house other days and even though I don't really like what that does to my life it's the best I don't know it's the best I've found for um being able to really focus because it's amazing how having a thing at 3 p.m distracts you even if you got up at nine you know and it's just like it's laying there off in the distance like Oh, I got to do that thing later, you know, and it's, it's sort of amazing how distracting I find it. Um, I mean, I, it's funny. I think about it, working from home and being your own boss and your own deadlines and everything is, uh, it, it takes, it's a very specific skill and I don't think I'm great at it. I mean, I've been successful so far, so I guess I'm doing it. Okay. I'm doing it to an adequate level, but, um, man, I could be a lot better. I wish, I wish I had a lot of different disciplines, you know? Oh my gosh. I relate to 700% of all of this. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and, and it was interesting because the reason why we were talking about that was just talking about um, the the change in brain space it takes from novel to comic writing, which is another clip that I'll play. But but that's how we got into that. And what she said about, you know, having something at three, even though you wake up at nine, like kind of messes with you. And yep. I was like, that's so, yeah, I, I have that too. And so after we had that conversation, I actually started thinking about that in terms of my own uh, process because I'm a freelancer. My time is, you know, mostly my own for trying to figure out like what I need to do in a day and whatever. And being right now, I'm still technically uh, the writer in residence at Sorrell's place. I'm leaving tomorrow. Oh my gosh, I'm so sad. Um, I know it's so sad, but, but being here, one of the things was, is that I wasn't supposed to be doing anything else. Like this was my month to only concentrate on my writing. And for a large part, that's what I did. I mean, there were a few things I had to take care of on Twitter and some stuff I had to set up and whatever, but you know, I didn't teach any classes this month, except for the workshop that I taught for this. I, I wasn't, 
doing anything else but just trying to like get words on the page. And I discovered some new things about my process and how I work best that I don't think I would have discovered without this particular time by myself. And after talking to Kelly, I was like, that I think is probably a good idea for me to do as well, to like designate certain days as I will leave the house and I will get errands done during these days. Designate certain days where like, okay, I will do my interviews on these days. I, I will maybe get together with Aline and record a podcast on these days. Uh, just so that I have, I collect all those things that I have to do outside of me or outside of my writing into specific pockets so that I'm like, but today is a writing day. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to write all the words ever. It just means that like, this is what I get to concentrate on today with this. Um, so yeah, I, I was thinking about that and I was like, that's actually kind of brilliant. And that seems to be a way that, that works and makes sense for her. And I'm sure that, you know, it, obviously it's not going to work for everybody. And especially not if you are not a person who's a freelancer, but yeah, like j just realizing that that is a thing that, something that that could be going on later in the day might disrupt your ability to just like get stuff done earlier in the day. Yep. I'm the same way. So I, we have, you know, like days that we run errands, it's not necessarily, um, the same day of the week, but it's like, we'll kind of look at our schedule and we'll be like, okay, well to preface for people who are, um, a little bit less familiar, my husband and I both work from home. Um, and so, I, I do a lot of projects, which is why when like Kelly was talking, I'm like, I'm super interested to hear what she has to say about some of the stuff because I have a lot of projects too. And so does my husband. We both work from home. We both can set our own hours. We both, you know, all of that stuff. And there's a trap you can fall into where, um, you know, you're, you, you end up giving yourself a commute because you're going out of the house to do something like every day. Um, and so we, we definitely do that. It's like, okay, we need, we need to go to, to Costco. There are, you know, burritos that my husband likes and, you know, that kind of thing. So we need to do a Costco run this week and we need some fresh produce. So we probably need to go to Sprouts because our refrigerator is not a walk-in. So we can't get a lot of produce at Sprouts or at, um, Costco, um, and that kind of thing. So we'll kind of group that together and then maybe we'll do, we'll plan on doing some light work that day, like administrative stuff and catching up with emails and, you know, the things that we can do piecemeal here and there. But when we really need to sit down and work, it's like, okay, this is, this is a stay at home day and we are not leaving. And even having things like, you know, not grouping, you were talking about interviews or whatever, not grouping those together is really detrimental to my productivity when I need to be like sitting down and focusing on something because, you know, as Kelly was saying, if there's something at three o'clock today, I'm like, oh, well, I can't get too deep in this because if I get lost in it, then I'm not going to be able to kind of surface in time to, to do that, you know, to record that podcast or that interview or whatever, or, um, I'll be thinking ahead about it, you know? So I also, I, I try to group things together and that's why also I think Tempest, you and I try to record, you know, several batch record originality so that we know we, yes, I have, you know, this morning or this afternoon or whatever, um, or this whole day, sometimes if we're doing several where it's like, okay, I know that I'm going to be prepping, um, 
to do an episode, I'm going to be listening to what, what the guest said. I'm going to be recording timestamps. I'm going to be jotting down thoughts and then we're going to record it. And then, you know, by the end of the, the kind of, when we record two or three episodes, I'm exhausted. Like I, I love you to bits, but it's really hard having the podcast persona on, you know, and then, um, you know, Why going no, and trying to do something like that, <laughs> like <laughs> super creative later, you know, like, I don't know, muffling the curse word sometimes takes a really big effort because uh, we try to keep it suitable for, for many ages. So. No F-bombs today. No F-bombs today. But yeah, I, I definitely do that too. And I think it, it works really well for me. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I, I've been thinking about how that's going to factor into my new process that I've discovered while here. Um, and, and I think that it's just, even when you're like, I'm, I'm a creative type and I just like do things when the, when the muse comes to me and, and whatnot, uh, they're for some people, sometimes like having some structure, having some like loose rules about how you're going to go about doing this, that, or the other can help you like then settle down into doing something creative. So you can just dive in and not have to worry about, oh crap, like in a couple hours, I have to like think about this other thing. So yep. it's very smart. Can I ask you a related question? Yes. Are you still using the fabulous to kind of help you with morning and evening routines? Uh, a little bit, yes. Um, at first, I wanted to throw the fabulous out of a window and burn it to the ground. Um, oh, no. In part because, well, there were a lot of different things going on. One of the things that was going on is that it, it didn't used to be this way until they monetized. And after they monetized, every now and then they're like, you should pay this money to do. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay you the money. And I even paid the money for a little while. And I was like, this is not worth the money. So... And I send that feedback literally every time they, they're like, you should join the paid part. I'm like, no. And I'm going to send you feedback on how you should leave me alone. But, and then the, the other thing that I sort of discovered, or when, once I sat down and thought about it, I was like, you know, the reason why I sort of couldn't really get, appreciate the fabulous is because I felt like it was dictating to me what I should be doing. Yes. And never mind the fact that I... <laughs> set the timer for all of these things like mm -hmm. the fabulous didn't set the timer for any of this like I set when these things should happen and I was still like don't tell me what to do fabulous <laughs> and I'm like this is ridiculous yeah. um and and so uh but when I came here uh it had been a while since I had actually activated it I, I got a new phone and I didn't even put it on the phone and I was like well but the the ritualized stuff actually I did enjoy and I did like having basically what it is is like a voice checklist of things that I should be doing in the morning and the evening and so I was like well what if I just did this what if I just turned on the morning ritual and the evening ritual and I didn't put like your to-dos and you know, you have to do this when you're writing and all that stuff. I didn't right. put that in the fabulous. I just did the morning and evening ritual. And the those rituals were only filled with things that I did absolutely need to do. Like not things that I was aspiring to do or whatever, but things that I did need to do. And once I did that, uh, and once I arranged all of the, you know, the rituals to just things that I needed to do, it became much easier to be like, oh, okay, yes, I'm, I'm awake now and I'm going to do these things in a row. Drink um, water. 
Right. Drink the water. They're always like, drink water. I'm like, okay. Everything starts with drinking water. So, you know, I drink the water. I would do the things. Every now and then I'd be like, shut up, fabulous. I don't want to do yoga, but I would do the yoga because it takes 10 minutes and it's, you know, it's good for me. So, but then one thing I discovered, and this is not the way that you're supposed to use fabulous, but it was really helpful to me was that I have a writing ritual, but the reason why I kept not doing my writing ritual is because I set it for a specific time during the day, Mm. but I don't always actually sit down at that same time every day to write. And so I was like, that, that's not helpful to me to have it like go off at 12. And then I feel really guilty about being like, shut up. So, but then I discovered that you can create rituals and don't put an alarm on them. And the app doesn't like when you do that, but the app will let you do it. And so I was like, okay, this is good because then I set out my ritual for writing and I only activate it when I'm actually ready to write. And that helped a lot because then I was like, okay, I know I'm going to start my writing process at like 2 p.m. today. So when I am like, okay, let's do this, that's when I activate the ritual. And then that made it so that I completed the ritual much more often because I was the one who decided when I was going to start. So yeah, and and I found that the writing ritual thing really helped me to like get out of the headspace of, okay, I was doing this other thing, now I'm doing this thing, now I'm doing my writing, which is another one of the problems that I have. And this is one of the things that I talked to Kelly about um, when I, when, you know, because she said that she writes comics, but she also writes prose. And I asked her um, what the difference was in her creative brain between the prose writing and the comic writing. I love it, but um, it's I've I've really I've basically failed to write another novel since I've started writing comics. I mean, comics is a really punishing schedule. Um, it moves really fast, and it has a lot of deadlines, and there are a lot of pieces to it. Not not unlike novel writing, you know, there's like editing passes and lettering passes and reviewing art and all these things, and it's just amazing how easy it is to get caught up in. Uh, how many steps there are and how involved it is. And I find switching between the two is really difficult. So um, it's, you just really got to change your brain a little bit. And so if you've been working on comics all day and you want to just be like, Oh, let me just work on the novel for an hour. It's honestly, it takes you an hour just to like get back into the swing of writing prose. And I've, I've found that really difficult. So I, I, I have not mastered it yet. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get my second novel out there or, well, it's my third novel, but it's the second in the story killer series. I'm hoping that's going to happen pretty soon. Um, but, uh, it's, it's been a real struggle to be honest. I so totally get that. Yeah. And and that was, um, I, I was curious, that was one of the big reasons why I wanted to talk to Kelly was because, yeah, like switching your brain, your creative brain um, into different mediums. I, I basically pretty much only write prose, you know, I don't, uh, other than nonfiction. And even with, with me, with like switching between like, if I'm going to write nonfiction today or if I'm going to write prose today, like I, I get really tunnel visiony. I really need to like focus on one kind of writing in a day or else I, I sort of like end up really discombobulated. And I, and I just wondered if, if that was the same for things that I consider to be sort of on the same creative level because fiction and nonfiction to me are like very, very different things. I mean, obviously they both involve like writing things down, but you know, I engage a way different part of my brain when I'm writing nonfiction than when I write fiction. 
Whereas if you're writing, you know, prose and then writing uh, scripts or comics, those are both creative things. You know, they, they both seem to be the, in the same sort of brain space in my head, but for Kelly, it's not quite, they're, they're different modes. They're different parts of the brain. I can see that where, you know, with a, you're basically writing a script when you're writing comic books. Um, and the prose is usually like much smarter, not much smarter, much snappier. You know, you're not using typically like paragraphs of text to to set up a situation or that kind of thing. So I can totally see where uh, it, it would be a different experience. Um, I also have this kind of with all of the different things that I do, you know, when I'm working on stuff for App Camp for Girls, I can't do, you know, things for the podcast. It's just a completely different mindset and brain space for me to do that. And so, you know, I can split days up into like morning and evening, but I can't, it's hard for me to be like, okay, I'm going to work on App Camp for Girls stuff for, you know, 45 minutes and then I'm going to switch over and write a blog post for my business. And then I'm going to switch over and I'm going to get ready for a call with Tempest. And then I'm going to go, you know, geez, I have too many things, you know, I'm going to go make a, a you post. You do have on, a lot of things. You know, like <laughs> thinking about an, adding another one. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and so I, I can't do that just because even thinking about, um, even even thinking about, you know, working, volunteering with a nonprofit is different than the kind of work that I do for myself. And I, I get why that is hard to switch back and forth. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, Kelly talked about this um, in the interview that we did. And she has like some really interesting things to say, um, especially about the comics process. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I've figured it out. I mean, I think that's the sort of... Um that's sort of the crux of the failure, right? Is that, um, you know, thinking about how to lay out a comics page and how to pace it correctly and what dialogue's going to fit and what's not. And, oh, I'd like to say all these things, but there's nothing I hate more than a, than a comic book page that's just packed solid with balloons. So I better figure out how to edit this it's just such a different storytelling animal than prose um, that I don't know. The downshift is tough for me. Um, I, I also have a tough downshift when I'm writing like pilots, but I comics and pilots, uh, comics and television or film feel closer. Prose feels like, you know, you're just sort of constantly in that narrative there's, there's more of a natural, I don't want to say stream of consciousness because that implies like that you're not editing yourself or that you're not staying true to a narrative, but the way it comes out just feels very different to me. Um, I think there are times when they get closer, like when you're really in it with comics and you're doing like dialogue notes and stuff, but you know, that again, that's more the notes than when I'm actually writing the script. Like when I write notes, I'm probably closer to the way I write prose, but when it actually comes time to write this, this, the comic book script, I mean, you're constant, every panel you're breaking, you know, that stream in order to be like, okay, now what does this action look like? And what is this? And then how much can I fit here? You know, it's just such a different, 
you know, there, <laughs> I really, I really struggle with it. I don't know. I don't know how tough it is for other people to toggle between them, but for me, it's been a real problem. And I feel bad about it all the time because even though a lot, there's a lot of crossover with my fans and my readers, um, I think, I feel like that's true. Um, you know, it's, there are people who want the story killer book, especially those who don't care about comics are like, what the hell, you know, when you sign up to get into a series, like you don't think it's going to take the author three years to get out the next volume. And I feel bad about it all the time, but like, it's just a constant struggle to try and juggle all the deadlines plus figuring out how to switch my brain over. So I, I think that the, that is a very long winded response to, I don't know the answer. If I did, I'd be doing better, I think. Yeah. And, and basically the, the question I had asked was, you know, how do you juggle writing a novel and writing comics? And Not <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I'm sure it's like, you know, this is all individual. So mm -hmm. the way that it, it works for Kelly um, or the way that she has to like sort of silo things a little bit um, may be different for somebody who's like much more adept at like switching their brain or for them, it's not as much of a brain switch or whatever. So I don't even necessarily think that it's not like that, that she's not doing it well or anything like that because everything no, is yeah. individual. And um, but I, I do, I do appreciate the fact that she's like, you know, the, the, the comics, they're paying the bills. Um, but you know, writing, writing novels doesn't always pay the bills. Um, because you know, well, her novels are, are kickstarted. So they're, um, fan driven, or at least the second one I, I think was, but, um, you know, even with a traditional publisher, like you have to write the thing, uh, before they give you the money for the most part. So you know, but with comics, she's like, I have a gig. I write these comics. They send me these checks. So that's, yeah. that's another consideration. It's just like, what are you getting paid to do uh, versus what are you going to do that will possibly bring future payment, but does not bring payment right at this time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say, I, I don't know Kelly well, or really at all. Um, I, I literally just started following her on Twitter because I was like, I don't know. I thought I was, I don't know anyway, but, um, I also get the sense that she's doing a thing that I know I am prone to do, which is, um, really, I, I minimize the things that I've accomplished, you know, like I put on a summer camp two years in a row for, you know, kids entering the eighth and ninth grades. Okay. It's just, it's, it's a thing I did, but it's not like, Oh my God, God, it's the best thing ever. Or like uh, the Indiegogo that we did for, for App Camp just wrapped up and it raised $75,000. And I was the person running that Indiegogo, like the tweets about it, the, you know, any kind of media interviews and that kind of thing were me and, you know, one other person. And so like, I really, I raised $75,000 for this organization. It's just like, all right, well, that's amazing. That's, but it doesn't feel, it's just like, okay, we hit the goal, but I wanted to get more, you know, it, and it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's a thing that I do. Like if it were anybody else, I'd be like, why aren't you ecstatic? And it's just like, well, it's just, it's done now. And it's a thing I did. And now I need to do the next thing. And I'm kind of wondering if that's, if that's part of what I'm hearing with Kelly, like, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze or whatever, but, um, I, I have noticed that tendency and in, in very, um, 
I guess, driven creative people is like, um, how, how much more can I do? How much more can I be doing? I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. I have more ideas. I have more things that I, that I want to accomplish and I need to figure out how, you know, to, to fit that all in. Like it's a, a, a jigsaw puzzle, you know? Yeah. And, and quite honestly, I feel like also there's this other factor of the stuff that she's doing in comics. It's like so awesome. It's so you know? good. Yeah. Um, you know, the I personally really love the gem comics. I have so many things to say. We're literally going to have to like put a pause on me of talking about these this gem comic <laughs> because I could just go on for hours and have. Um, but also the Ghostbusters comic, which is based on, you know, the the most recent Ghostbusters movie. And that I feel like is also really important because I mean there are lots of things about that movie that that people have had problems with, and people are like, oh, it's the age of reboots and blah blah blah. And I do understand all those criticisms, but also it's a comic about four women, most of whom are scientists, one of whom is a historian, who go around being awesome, fighting ghosts, using their brains and their connection to each other as friends. Like, do we, where, where, you know, we don't really have that in many places in comics. Yeah. And we have that in Ghostbusters. And, and I can't wait to find out what's going to happen in Rogue and Gambit. It's probably just going to be a lot of Rogue being awesome and Gambit being like, my share. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it me. Gambit. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. So like, I, but I understand wanting to do, you know, all the different like passion projects and, and all the different yeah. like creative parts of you. I totally understand that. But I also think that like the comics work that she is doing is also really just super amazing and important. And so sometimes it's like, well, we'll just have to do this amazing, important thing for a little bit longer and then we can get back to the other amazing, important thing I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking like I don't have access to so many of these things or money to buy all of them. Like Seattle Library has a really good graphics graphic novel collection. I need mm-hmm. to move so I can go read all of these. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So yes. Um and what's interesting is that in my conversation with Kelly, there are a couple things that came up that were sort of similar to the stuff that came up when I was talking to Monica Valentinelli. Um, because you know, Monica does RPGs and Kelly does comics, but they both um have to work in collaboration with other people when they do these. And with comics, it's a very specific like collaboration between the writer and the artist. And so I, I was asking Kelly about that and about how, how deep that collaboration runs, because I've always wondered that, like, is it just like the writer does everything that's important and the artist just comes along and like draws what they're told, which I have spoiler alert. That's actually not how this works. (laughs) Let's find out. I think it's on me to make sure I'm not putting too much dialogue on the page. Um, that we can't tell our story visually the way we want. So I try to be pretty, um, pretty cognizant of, of when I'm not, uh, of when I'm overdoing it, you know, you get a sense, um, the more you write of how much is too much. And listen, there are times when it makes sense for there to be a lot and you need a lot. And there are times when you want as little as possible and that works. Um, you know, Phasma as a comic was 
a really low on any kind of narration or dialogue. I mean, she's a very laconic character. Um, she doesn't talk. She doesn't, she doesn't, we're not inside her head and that's by design and she doesn't explain herself to people. She's a character of action. So, you know, there was very little, there was a lot more description in the script about the things that I wanted, um, both because I had to be super clear about what actions were and things. And because, you know, you have to be sort of, you're calling back very specific Star Wars things, especially in that first issue that we had. Um, so, uh, that required sort of a different, you know, Marco Chichetto was the artist for that. And, you know, he didn't have to worry about a lot of dialogue cause there was very little, but it did require, um, sorry, that's my cuckoo clock in the background. Um, it did require a certain amount of, um, a, a sort of different collaboration between us of making sure we were understanding, Hey, here are these clear modes of action and we have to be super clear about them because I'm not going to come in and add some little dialogue to explain it. If we don't get it right, like we just have to, we just have to own it. So, um, you know, and that's very different than something like working on Hawkeye with Leo Romero, um, where, uh, you know, there's a lot of Kate's narration is a lot of how she thinks and and her, her own personal jokes to herself. It's a very sort of Spider-Man-esque take of like her, she doesn't have a sidekick, but she's sort of constantly narrating things and commenting on things. And that takes up space. She's a, she's a much chattier character. And so we have to leave room for that. Um, and, you know, working with Leo is a real dream. I mean, uh, he's, we're just in very good sync. He has really great instincts and the way Leo uh, and a lot of artists do that, but I know for sure Leo does it because I've seen his roughs of course, but you know, he'll lay out the balloons. Even if I don't number them in the script, when he lays out a page, you know, say panel one has got two dialogues. So he'll rough out balloons and he has a really good sense for how big they'll be based on what's there. And so then he'll be like one, he'll name it one and he'll name it two. And then by the end of the panel, you know, you've got 14 balloons or however many you have. And it really shows you a, a real clarity of thought in the way he lays out a page and paces it. And so, yeah, I think it's a, that's a huge part of the collaboration. Uh, the first half, uh, is sort of more on me. And then the second half is more on them, but you know, the better, you know, your artists and the better you guys understand what you bring to the table. I think the, the more seamless that process is. Yeah. I love that. And, and I love that, you know, any, almost any comics writer that I have spoken to has said something similar about how, you know, the collaborative process and, and, um, I think that that's not something that you will, that you hear often enough how important the artist is to that process, you know, cause they're not just there to like draw some pictures. They're there to work on the pacing of this, this story as well as the writer, you know, they, they're the ones who are going to be able to like craft it in such a way that visually and textually everything goes together and I feel like I don't hear out of mainstream comics enough, like, you know, the, the audience facing part about how important that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm sure they get told in meetings somewhere, I guess. Don't talk about it. <laughs> don't talk about collaboration. 
Right. But, but yeah, so I, I love that. And, and it just, it makes me, you know, more appreciate what Kelly does knowing Mm -hmm. that that is something that she like will readily say is like all uh, about how all of these different things like come together. And it makes me think about how in, in general with collaboration, again, you have to be able to like have, you know, mutual respect and mutual trust and whatnot, and just also know what, you know, the other person is capable of, you know, knowing like, oh, this is, this artist is really great. and They're really good at this. And so then that might influence how you decide to like, you know, design the script going forward because you know that that artist can handle this thing or that thing. They can, they can figure out where the dialogue bubbles go better than, you know, maybe somebody else. And, and I, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by this whole thing. Yeah. It, it's, it seems like a very, um, there are a lot of considerations in the process that just would not occur to me, you know, like if for some really bizarre reason someone came up to me tomorrow and was like, hey, why don't you write this comic? We'll pay you money. I'd be like, I have no idea like how you do that. I have, I mean, I have a really, really vague idea, I guess I should say. Like I, I write a scripty thing and I give it to someone and they make it pictures. Okay. Something. Yeah. Something happens. And there's some Something. magic, some hand waving. <laughs> and then there's a book. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I, it's so awesome. And and just thinking about also the, you know, the appreciation of artists, like when we were talking with Nyla Magruder, yeah. um, and the, what are, what writers can learn from artists is there's probably like just a vast number of things. I feel like probably comics writers get more of that sort of education, not, you know, as, as a formal education, but just from understanding it from working with so many artists, which yeah. makes me want to run out and kind of think about becoming a comic writer, but <laughs> I don't read comics all that much. And so therefore. <laughs> it, it does make me think about our creative collaboration episode though, from a little while ago. Um, and just like in our society, like words and art do go together. It's something that we've, you know, made a thing and you know we were talking more along the lines of so what if you had like interpretive dance and words or you know writing writing songs for a book or you know whatever um but I I do agree I think that there's probably a lot um a lot of learning and different ways to look at the world that you'll you'd get as um someone working in comic books either as the you know, the, the line artist or the person who does inking or writer or whatever, the letterer. Um, I don't know how much those are separate jobs anymore. Um, I think it probably depends upon where you're working, but yeah. So now that comes the part that I know you've all been waiting for. <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready? so ready for this. I'm so here for this. We're about to talk about Jim. <laughs> so... So, Tempest, you mentioned it earlier, but for people who don't know, the way we did the Jim and the Holograms podcast, we did the Jim cast together. That's actually how we met, though. Um, yeah. Alex Knight and I, um, Alex Knight wanted to do a podcast, and I kind of knew him a little bit. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I would be willing to do that with you sometimes. And then somehow it turned into like he and I were going to do it. And we were like, we really need someone else. And so we just tweeted. <laughs> just tweeted and was like so we're doing this podcast and we really need someone else who would want to talk about Jim and the holograms and I think like four people tweeted at me and they were like 
Tempest Bradford needs to do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, yeah, like my Twitter lit up. I'm pretty sure that there was like a bat signal pointed at the sky, uh-huh. but instead of it being like in the shape of a bat, it was in the shape of the Gemstar earrings. <laughs> I looked up and I was like, someone needs me to talk about Gem and the holograms. I love it. So yes, it was it was almost like an immediate like coming together. So it was pretty it was awesome. And it took quick. <laughs> but yeah, it's because I I have long I've long been a fan of Gem and the Holograms. Um like when I was a kid, I was a super fan. I was that kid who was sitting there with like the VHS and I had the the record button in my hand and when the songs would come out I would like song and I knew the episodes really well so I knew when songs were coming I'm like here we go and so then I had like a whole tape of just the songs from Gem and the Holograms which I then transferred to a cassette tape so I could listen to it in the car <laughs> sing along and I knew all the episodes and it was amazing and, and I was really sad when Gem went away as it eventually did um, and so when the DVDs came out I was pretty sure I was like the third person to buy them. <laughs> and, and I had joined all these like mailing lists about Gem and the Holograms as an adult. Um, and then we, I rewatched all the episodes of the DVDs and I was like, what, what is going on? <laughs> what is I happening? I felt like that too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was interesting because like so much of it, I really did remember well. Like sometimes there are cartoons that you watch as a kid and you think you remember them and then you see them again. You're like, what? Like He-Man was like that for me. I was like, I thought I remembered He-Man really well. And I was like, woo. No, I did not. Uh, but Gem, I remember pretty well, but like a lot of the problems with it sort of leapt out at me mm-hmm. as I was, um, oh my gosh, as I was rewatching. So when uh, they, I heard the news that they were doing a comic and this was around the time that the news came that they were doing a live action movie, uh, the movie which shall not be spoken of. Mm-mm. And what movie? Yeah, I don't know. Um, so they were doing this comic, and that was the only thing. And I was very excited for the comic. And I and I was also really excited because I felt like the comic just did a lot of things that I wish that the show had done. Yep. Um, so, so, yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time talking to Kelly about the Gem and the Holograms comic. And, uh, and the first thing, you know, we talked about was how it was a show uh, and, and then subsequently a comic about um, awesome women. I was a big fan of the show as a kid. And I think it was only in sort of retrospect that I realized like part of the reason I responded to it so much was because it was so filled with so many incredible women. And that just wasn't something we saw a lot of in our cartoons, uh, back in the eighties and nineties, you know, you, you'd get these great female characters, but it wouldn't be like a whole cartoon the whole team of them you know it was uh it was your token scarlets and lady jays in gi joe you know so um but that's not something you're cognizant of as a kid like you just know you like something and so um i was always a big fan um and then when the opportunity came up that maybe i could get to do this i did like a big rewatch as we were preparing the pitch and it's just like such fun campy goodness like it's such a crazy cartoon it's almost it's almost amazing to realize that it was actually out there with you know like three music videos in every episode like it was crazy just crazy stuff i love that cartoon um <laughs> but, but the I, whole theme... I loved talking about that cartoon with you <laughs> 
Aline hedging, hedging <laughs> over there. Um, but, but yeah, the, the thing that she mentioned, um, which leads into this next clip is, is just talking about how, how unusual it was to have just a whole cartoon just about some women doing some stuff, uh, some awesome stuff. The, the biggest other one I could think of that happened at the time was She-Ra. And She-Ra uh, was, the cast was mostly women. Um, and there was, you know, that token dude, Bo, who, uh, such a problem, Bo, but that's a oh, whole like other podcast. Bo, yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Bo actually had a lot of the same problems that Rio had. A lot of toxic masculinity going on uh, and being beaten down by fabulous matriarchal societies. But um, yeah, Jem was one of the few ones like that. And one of the things that we talked about on the Gemcast a lot was how it was really about the strong ties between these women you know, between Jem and her foster sisters and eventually Rhea, when, when she shows up, you know, the, the whole basis of it is that they are there for each other. They are very close. They are friends. And their relationship is not built on the kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, toxic femininity, if there could be yeah. such, a, such a term, that you see a, a lot of in other, in other shows and movies and stuff where the women really actually aren't that nice or friendly to each other. And they're sort of, you know, it's just like, it seems like a lot of the times female relationships in media are all about the worst aspects Competing of female relationships. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but that wasn't what Jem was about, and that's one of the things I appreciated about it, and that's one of the things that I appreciated about the comic um, when it came out. Yeah, it was really important to me. Um, I think that we see a lot of toxic crap between women in media, um, reality TV, and our you know fictional TV. Um, it's uh, scripted, I guess is what the word would be there. Um, so I think that I, it was always a huge priority, but you know, there was also just no way I was going to do it another way. Like, um, the, the, the foundation was already laid for it to be like that. And, you know, it's so nice and refreshing to be able to do like really positive, uh, positive interpretations of characters. Uh, I think that one of the things I'm most proud of in what we did is that I think we brought that same element to the misfits, which, uh, is there a little bit, the misfits of them always sort of being on the same side or whatever, but I think we went a lot deeper and like found a way to still let them be the antagonists, but show their loyalty amongst themselves and how close they are as a family. You know, um, I love the contrast between Gem and the holograms being this literal built family, right? Um, some of them are adopted. They've lost their parents, um, their sisters, and they created that family, but it's also literally a family. And then the misfits who are literal misfits from these sort of bad home life situations who've sort of come together and made their own sort of unofficial sisterhood. Uh, I love, I love how those things are the same. And I also love sort of the differences between them and what they say about the characters. That's a really interesting point. I feel like, um, so for, for people who don't know, they're basically, they're like, 
two factions, I guess, in in Jim and the Holograms, by and large. Um, and one is, you know, Jim and the Holograms. And I think I have this tendency to boil them down to the good guys and the bad guys with like air quotes around those phrases. Um, like Jim and the holograms, they're altruistic. They're, you know, doing foster care and taking care of, you know, like little kids and everything they do is all about me, like making sure that, um, the kids are taken care of and have a roof over their head and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the misfits are, um, are the bad guys and they're, you know, it's just pizzazz wants fame and that's all it is. And so she sabotages, uh, you know, sabotages Jim and the holograms or at least attempts to over and over and over again. And they're really nasty to each other. And, you know, Jim and the holograms have this really supportive relationship where, you know, they try to uplift each other and, you know, still tell each other when they're doing wrong, but, you know, stick with them. And I don't know, but that's a really a, a more nuanced view of it, which I guess I appreciate from the, the writer of the graphic novels. Um, but I, I had never thought about them as two families with different dynamics, I guess. Yeah. And I, I feel like there was a little bit of a hint of that in the cartoon, but it wasn't gotten into as deeply. I mean, you know, we, we learn Roxy's backstory eventually. Um, you know, Pizzazz has, is always there with her like poor little rich girl routine, but then we see the very reason why she acts the way that she acts. Mm -hmm. Like it becomes quite clear. Um, you know, Stormer is the one who doesn't quite fit, but, but yeah, they all feel in some way as if they are like not outcast, but outside, mm -hmm. um, which is not something that necessarily is the thing that binds together uh, Jerrica and the other holograms. And, and I, I did like the, the deeper exploration of that dynamic in the comics, because yeah, it's not just that they are this band who's opposing this other band or whatever, because like in, in some respects they have, they do have a real ax to grind. Um, luckily they don't, uh, stoop to try to bulldoze children when they get angry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. Crash cruise ships. And right. That happened so many times. Mm -hmm. You don't know. If you didn't see, you don't know. Um, A bomb so under yeah. the couch. Yep. Right. Just yep. placing bombs in, yep. in the house with children because of reasons. Um, <laughs> so yeah. It, uh, there, the, the reason for the consternation between the two groups, the reason for the coming together of the two groups feels much more nuanced and interesting and real than sometimes it did in the cartoon. Right. Um, but, you know, at the same time, one of the things I also have, have come to appreciate about that cartoon over time is that the whole reason that Hasbro wanted this cartoon was to sell toys, right? But that's not the reason why Christy Marks, who was the, the head writer uh, and creator of that show, that's not what she wanted. You know, that, that wasn't her driving force, you know, to sell toys. She wanted to tell a, a, an interesting story. She's the one who came up with this story behind Jim and the holograms, the reason why there's a gem and Jericho, whatever, like all Hasbro did was make some toys, right. you know? Um, and so, well, sometimes I'm just like, that was ridiculous. At the same time, <laughs> there also were some things in there that were really awesome. But, yes. But I like that. I feel like this is sort of a thing that, that we are doing at this 
time in our culture, uh, in our media culture, that is is fascinating to me, and I approve of it. And that is the, the power of transformative works. You know, as much as people want to complain about, oh, everything is a reboot or whatever, like, you know, going back to the Ghostbusters example, for instance, you know, with Ghostbusters, they didn't just reboot Ghostbusters. They transformed it by casting all women in the role of the Ghostbusters, like doing essentially a gender swap on all the major characters, right? That brought something different to the entire storyline other than just we updated it for a modern age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think about this in terms of uh, anything that that one might call fan fiction, but now we have the more fancy term of transformative work for it. Um, but things like the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. If you haven't watched the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which was a YouTube series that happened um, a couple of years ago, and and when it was when it was new, it was happening in real time. So, you know, so like a, a new video would come out like every week or every other week or something along those lines. But like that was how much time had passed in the actual world of this story. And so, Lizzie Bennet Diaries was um, a. a a, a modern update of the story of Pride and Prejudice told by Lizzie Bennett, who was a vlogger. And so all the characters there, all the major characters anyway, are there. And and the story is about like, you know, her meeting this dude who like, he's a rich guy, but he owns a company and like her sister falling in love with his friend and all this stuff. But it was all happening on blo- on vlogs on YouTube. And there were Twitter accounts as well and a Tumblr and but for a lot of it like the basically like the actors were the ones who were involved in the twitter and the tumblr and the whatnot and they were like being their characters as if they were real it was it was very cool i only caught like sort of the end of it so i wasn't like caught up in the phenomenon right from the beginning but one of the things that i loved about some of the changes that they made other than just updating it was the change that they made to what happened with lydia um, and, and I don't, if you haven't read Pride and Prejudice or seen the BBC version of it with Jennifer L and Colin Firth, I, I can't help you. You just got to go look at it. I don't know why you haven't already, but just do that. Like, don't watch, don't watch that Kira Knightley business. Like, just don't do it. Um, like if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch the Pride and Prejudice with Jennifer L and Colin Firth for free right now. So just, just go do it. But, or, or read the book. Like I, I won't tell you to watch things. If you can read a book, read the book. It's a good book. It's short. So, uh, but I'm going to spoil a little bit for you if you don't know. In the book, in the original book, this takes place in the Regency era of England. The youngest sister of uh, the protagonist, Elizabeth Bennet, um, gets involved in a situation in which she runs off with a dude, which is like, you can't do that in Regency England if you're a gentleman's daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she's eventually, um, she runs off with him. She thought they were going to get married. They didn't get married. Things ensued. And then somebody comes along and forces the dude who took off with her to marry her. And so then, like, so she's married. Um, and this is like a major, major turning point in this book is because it's like, this is just not something that's done. This can like ruin your whole reputation as a family, as a whatever. And so this is a big deal, not only for the sister who runs off with the dude, but also for the, all the other sisters and for the parents and just all this stuff. So as we were getting closer 
to the point at which the point in the narrative where Lydia runs off with the man that she shouldn't in this modern adaptation, you're just like, well, her running off to like eloping with some dude or like shacking up with some dude, like that's not, it doesn't have the same emotional impact as it, as it did, you know, for something that happened in the Regency. How are they going to do this? And I was actually a little bit afraid that they were going to like go down some route where they basically slut shamed Lydia for like sleeping with some dude or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they absolutely did not do that. And as a matter of fact, Lydia actually in the Lizabetta diaries actually comes out much better off than the Lydia in the book. Um, and, and it is a moment where Elizabeth Bennett realizes that she has been less charitable toward her sister than she really should have been. And it reaffirms their bond as sisters very specifically. And like every time I watch that episode where that happens, I actually cry because it's actually really beautiful and it's still true in some ways to the book, but, but the, the getting closer to the sisters, that's, that's specific to Lizzie Bennett diaries. And I think makes the story better for the way that they updated it, you know, for the world that they built within this YouTube series, it made much more sense for it to have gone down that way instead of the other way. And I was like, this is beautiful. And it's transformative. It's a commentary on what was while also being like a fully enclosed entertainment as it is on its own. Um, And so I I was thinking about that as, as Kelly was talking about um, the thing with the misfits too, because I feel like, yeah, once we, once we have gone beyond the time period of the original thing for updating it, then there also has to be some thought about what is best for now, as opposed to, you know, what are the things we don't have to adhere to? Mm -hmm. And just, I think um, in Jim and the hologram specifically, just like the art style is very clearly um, maybe, I don't even know what Christy Marks had in mind when, when they started Jim and the holograms in the eighties, but like there's still the same characters, right? You can look at them and tell who is supposed to be who from the cartoon versus the, uh, the books. But, um, as much as I loved Jim and the holograms, you know, in the rewatch, uh, that we did a couple of years ago, um, because it was diverse, right? We had, you know, someone from, like literally I think was born in China and you know we have there are different accents and different skin tones it's not just a bunch of white women doing things it's a diverse cast and they introduced more diversity as time went on and like the background characters weren't all white and um and that was all really great um but the new interpretation, the new spin on it is even more diverse. There are different body shapes. There are different hairstyles. There are different hair colors. There are different, you know, and it, it, it and I think I see Kimber and Stormer here. So I'm sure we're going to talk about some other things that it, it's able to do better, I think, than the comic or the, the book did because of, you know, kind of more time passing and also probably because of the medium. Yeah. I, I was asking Kelly about um, how, how she was, how she decided to make some of the changes that she did when, she, when uh, they decided to like change up some of the motivations for, for why everybody is doing what they're doing. Because if you watch the first episode of Jim or the first few episodes, which is all like strung together, why they do this thing that they do does not 
often actually make any mm-hmm. sense. <laughs> and so that was one of like, I was looking for that in my first issue of Gem and the Holograms. I was like, please make this make sense. Why they do this thing. And lo and behold, she did. And I was like, okay, whew, I could continue on because yeah. So, so I wanted, so I asked her about uh, where some of those tweaks came from, what, what her intentions were and, and all the stuff around that. There was a really great collaboration between um, Sophie and I and IDW. They were really into our vision. I mean, we certainly had conversations with John about, you know, the kind of things they wanted to see, but they were, they were very, we were all very on the same page from the beginning. And I was worried from go, um, that, you know, it would be hard with licensors because you hear that, um, all along. So I sort of thought Hasbro would be a real fight, you know? on certain things. And they were so great. They were so great that it sometimes was, uh, was difficult because like, for example, I'm a, I'm a fat woman and Sophie draws a lot of really great body diversity. It's one of the things she's best at. Uh, it's one of the things she's better at than anyone in comics. And when she did the first design for Stormer, I was like, wow, I mean, she's really fat. Like we're not just doing like chubby, you know, pleasantly plump that you sometimes see and can get away with. And I was like, you know, I, I worry about that character feeling like a self insert for me because, and honestly, it was like this moment where I didn't even realize what was happening as I was looking at these designs of Sophie's where I was like, it's so rare to see women who look more like me in comics that I was projecting myself onto her immediately, which tells you how important that kind of thing really is. Right. Um, and you know, it was my first comic that was going to be published. And so I was like, Oh man, I don't know. And she's, you know, I don't want people to think that's like an author self insert, like, Oh, I'm stormer or whatever. And, uh, I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to have to worry about it. Cause no way Hasbro is going to let Sophie draw her that way. They're going to come back and be like, Oh no, you need to thin her way, way down, you know? And, uh, so I was like, ah, I don't even have to worry about it. And then sure enough, they were like, we love it. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no. <laughs> and so of course, in retrospect, I'm so glad that Sophie draws the way she does, that she made Stormer exactly the way she was. And uh, I didn't really have to worry about it anyway because I'm not nearly as nice as Stormer, so it doesn't really feel like a self-insert. Um, <laughs> but it was one of those things where you really realize sort of as it's happening to you, like how important diversity is and why, like even without realizing that I never see characters that look like that, um, I didn't realize how important it was, you know, like, even though it's the thing I talk about, uh, it sort of caught me by surprise. Uh, so Hasbro was incredible about the process. It was really easy. We had a few little fights here and there about littler things that I would have liked to do differently, but mostly it was a a really easy and fun experience. I never see people who look like me in comics. I mean, yes, I'm a cis straight white woman, but I'm a fat, cis, straight, white woman, you know, and I never see myself represented in the media and, you know, just, just like she was talking about. And I think that's why part of the reason I loved the artwork from the moment I saw it, it was like, oh, this is, this is diverse. This is awesome. Yeah. I, I remember I was on Tumblr and scrolling down and I saw 
the picture of Stormer and it was like in a collection with like pictures of Stormer and the other misfits. And I was like, oh, that is some really awesome fan art. And they were like, this is the art for the new comic. And I was like, what? Really? Oh my God. It's not fan art. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I made such noises. Um, yeah. It, and that was really the first thing that hooked me in because I was a little afraid when I very, very, very first heard about it. Um, uh, that I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm so like protective of my memories of Gem and the holograms mm-hmm. and you know, there, that, the, that movie that doesn't exist, like really, it hurt me on such a deep level. <laughs> Did you ever <laughs> end up watching it or just reading the synopsis? No, I never watched yeah. it. I refuse. And even when it was like on HBO, I remember once I was flipping channels and I caught five seconds of it. I was like, nope, 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 <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not having this. So yeah. So no, I, I still haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was that and and being able to see that. And and she's right, you know you sometimes don't even realize how much you need a character that looks like you because you haven't had a character that looks like you or, or who shares your same, like very important identity until you see it. And you're like, Oh, I needed that. Oh my God. That's so awesome. Um, and, and it's just so important. Representation is so important. Yeah, I when I watched Wonder Woman, even though I looked nothing like Wonder Woman, like I had this moment at the beginning of the movie where I was like, oh, it's an island full of women kicking butt. This is amazing, right? you know, and right. um, I liked not I don't want to get like people like Wonder Woman was bad. Like there were things there were a lot of things I didn't like about it. But like those first few minutes, I was like, wow, this, this is pretty dang cool. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to have those moments, but it's also sad that, um, that we don't get them that, you know, not everybody gets to experience that. Like dudes, white, white dudes get to go to movies all the time and be like, yeah, I'm the superhero. And then everybody else is just kind of left going like, all right, that's cool. Right. It's like, oh, that's all right, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Well, and and I felt also that way about some of the other characters in the book. Like I love the way that Shayna is drawn. And what I and one other thing I really love about the whole comic, but but especially about Shayna, is that their hair is so awesome and amazing. And of course, it's not it's not hair that can actually exist outside of a comic book because it's way too varied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that said, um, Sophie Campbell, who's the the artist on on that does a really good job of creating hair for Shayna that makes sense for a black woman. And, and I love that because, and you know, this is again, not really super off from the cartoon where Shayna was always rocking some sort of purple fro. Uh, and, and we are led to believe that that purple hair grew out of her head, that color. Mm. Yeah. But, I have questions about still, hair color in that universe. Right. But it was still a fro and it was still like, it was one of those things where there wasn't, a lot of things that were particularly distinctively black about Shayna. Um, but given the, the backstory of that group, it, that was fine. Like there was more that was distinctively Mexican about Rhea, for instance, and there was the, the distinctively black about Shayna, but she always had this Afro and, and I feel like that, even that was like something that was really important to me as a kid without me realizing that because her hair was allowed to be her hair. Mm-hmm. 
And so this is why I just, I look at Shayna in the comics, I'm like, it's still the same thing. You know, she's rocking all these really great different hairstyles that are, you know, natural hairstyles for black women, but also still purple Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, you know, purple, it grows that way. Mm -hmm. It grows that way. (laughs) (laughs) I should have asked her whether or not it actually grows that way. So yeah. Missed opportunity. (laughs) It's an opportunity to ask. So yeah, I, you know, I, all those things are deeply important to me, and and I do love that that Stormer is a chubby woman. Like that, you know, that just made me really happy when I first saw those things. And the other thing that made me happy, although I I had like thoughts about it, I, I talked about this on the Gemcast, is that they made um, the relationship between Kimber, who's from the Holograms, and Stormer from the Misfits. Um, they made them, they put them in a relationship with each other. Now, when this was first announced or talked about or whatever, I wrote uh, an article where I was like, this is some more bisexual erasure and it kind of makes me angry. But at the same time, I was really happy though that their relationship was canon because in the show, this is like a children's television show from the 80s. So there's a whole episode where Kimber and Stormer like leave their respective bands and form a band with each other and you know, things happen. And when I watched that episode, like I remember as a kid being like, there's something weird going on here, the way that they're talking to each other. And then when I rewatched it as an adult, I was like, those two are having lesbian sex. <laughs> like that's just what's happening. They, this entire episode is about how they discovered that they really love having lesbian sex with each other. And that's, and they're a couple. And, and so then the headcanon ensued, like there were times in the jam cast where I was like, really what was happening is, is that they were in the back <laughs> while everybody else was fighting, having sex. So, so yeah, so, so they, it was announced really early on that Kimber and Stormer were going to have a relationship. And even though I was a little bit like, they're not lesbians, they're bisexual, blah, 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 whatever. I still was really happy that that was going to be canon. And I asked Kelly about it and I was like, were you influenced by that? That one episode, because I know, <laughs> I know the rest of us were. Um, I think, I mean, we always knew we we wanted to do more diversity than obviously than the, than the show did. I mean, I think the show was really great about diversity for its time, but you know, a lot of time has passed since then, so we knew we really needed to push it even further. Um, and so we knew we were going to have gay uh, and hopefully bisexual characters, et cetera. And uh, Stormer and Kimmer were just the really obvious choices. First of all, there was that great episode that is that in retrospect looks so obviously right. Like, a uh, like more than just a friendship. And there was also just, um, you know, you get the automatic Romeo and Juliet elements by not making, you know, you can't, it can't be any of the holograms cause they're sisters. So you, you need it to be two people from opposite sides or it has to be two misfits. Um, so, you know, and you get a lot more story mileage out of it being this Romeo and Juliet element. So it was pretty obvious from go, it was going to be Stormer and Kimber. And I think Sophie was like no question in her mind for me. I thought about it a little bit more, but she'd already been thinking about it, I think. So yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty clear. It was <laughs> going to be them from go. And I'm so glad it's in there. 
Yes, it makes me so happy. And and I do like that the way that it's constructed in the comics is it's different from yeah. the TV show in that, you know, Kimber is just a big fan of Stormers because the Misfits are an already established band in the world of the comic. And so when they meet, it's Kimber being like, oh my gosh, I love you so much. I love your your artistry and whatnot. And and also you're really hot. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, and and they're and they have to, you know, deal with a lot of stuff being, you know, that that there is a rivalry, but they also like have a really deep connection. And and there's like a lot of times where Kimber's like, where Storm was like texting her, like, please call me. Kimber's like, I can't, I can't, there's things. And it's like, ah. It's so good. It's so much awesome drama. It is. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I approve. And, and I'm glad that Hasbro approved. Yes. That's the thing too. Uh, and it's plausible drama too. Whereas I felt like with a cartoon, a lot of it was contrived. You know, we talked about the first episode where it was like, or the first arc. And it was like, this doesn't make sense. Um, and a lot of the times it was like, why why are they uh, gem spoilers why are they flying on hang gliders with lasers that'll cut, <laughs> that'll cut <laughs> through things like why why how is this a plan and it's just like well we needed something exciting to happen in this episode where you know like we needed something dramatic so why not hang gliding lasers or hang gliding misfits firing lasers or whatever um yeah Whereas the comic book feels a little less contrived and, and well, a lot less contrived. It, it feels natural as opposed to like, well, we just needed something big to happen. So we figured we'd have pizzazz try to run over little kids with a bulldozer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no police were called. Don't trust the popo. That was, <laughs> that was the message that I came away from that show with. Don't ever trust the popo. Big message in Jim and the holograms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. It's so many things. They, they didn't make sense, but I, I love that, you know, just, just the, the way that it's clear that there was some thought given into it. It's like, if we have this set up, then, then this is the way that we can tweak it so that it's not just like, we're not just going with the setup. Like we're trying to make it into a real story. Oddly enough, it reminded me a little bit of the way that um, when they, there was a He-Man reboot uh, sometime in the 2000s uh, that I watched a little bit. And one of the things that I liked about it was that it was, the writers clearly wanted to make a proper fantasy show. It was still a cartoon. Um, and but like with, you know, as I was saying with He-Man earlier, that a lot of the stuff I was like, this is terrible. Like some episodes <laughs> of He-Man just really weren't even like a real episode. It was just He-Man wandering around a forest. Like it just, <laughs> there were just a lot of things. But also the world of Eternia, which is where He-Man was from, was, you know, it was an alien world that was filled with a lot of people who were humanoid, but were clearly not all from the same race. There's like wasp people and there's like that red dude who looked kind of like a Yeti and <laughs> like some dude who had faces that switched and just like, and, and there was never any explanation as to where these people came from. What were they were all doing in the same, like it just, what? It, no, because there was no time for explaining because He-Man had to go punch something. Mm -hmm. So the new He-Man cartoon, um, which I don't even think is even streaming anywhere, made that whole thing make sense. Where, where it was that Eternia 
you know, it was a planet that had a lot of different races on it. Like humans were only, or humans like we would recognize were only one race on one continent. There were many other races on other continents. And the way that like all these different people came together was that the king went to them and said, okay, remember that Skeletor guy who like messed us all up a generation ago? And I was the one who like helped to, you know, led the charge to defeat him. And we put him in the phantom zone or whatever it was called. It wasn't called the phantom zone, whatever. Um, and he's like, well, Skeletor escaped from the phantom zone and I need to, we need to all band together to like defeat him again because he's an evil sorcerer. And he has to actually go and convince other rulers of these other groups of uh different you know humanoid races to join him and then adam who then becomes he-man he's like just a kid like he's a little kid in the in the original cartoon like he was supposed to be sort of like young and he was always playing like the young stupid irresponsible adam but he was the same literally the same height as he-man with the same hairdo and the difference between them was that adam had on a shirt he-man didn't and (laughs) he-man had a tan but nobody could tell that adam and he-man were the same person it was Mm -hmm. oh my god it was so ridiculous but like in the new cartoon um, Adam is, he looks like he's 15. Okay. When he transforms into He-Man, he gains like a foot of height and a bunch of muscle and he looks like a different guy. And Adam's irresponsibility is actually part of his actual character. You know, when the sorceress first comes to him, she's like, you got to get this sword and you got to help us defeat. He's like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not going to do that. I want to go play Tiddlywinks. And <laughs> the sorceress is just like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like him being, you know, irresponsible and not taking things seriously and whatnot was part of his character. But then when he actually does like finally take up the sword and he becomes He-Man, he starts to understand more of his responsibilities. But his father still treats him like the irresponsible kid that he was 20 seconds ago, mm-hmm. which is where some of the conflict comes in. And I was like, this is all really great. Like this is, this is a real story. Um, and, you know, it's not that people weren't writing like real stories and they were writing He-Man because for God's sake, it was Paul Dini and J. Michael Straczynski who were writing that show for a time. Um, but I think that just like the, the needs of people for, for stories changes. And it's not even just like, oh, they're writing for adults now before they were writing for kids because they're still, you know, gem, the gem comic book can still be read by kids. You know, it's written in such a way that kids can pick it up you know, and, and they will, because probably it's a comic, but also for like the adult audience. Um, and this cartoon was like, you know, on Cartoon Network where there are just as many kids watching as adults, if not more. So it's not even just that, like the stuff in the past was written for kids. It's just like, there were different ideas about what kids wanted to watch, what was, you know, good entertainment for kids. And, and I feel like also a lot of it is just like people who grew up watching those things, are like elements of this are good elements of this are not so good perhaps we should build on the elements that are good and and add better elements and just erase the stuff that wasn't that great mm-hmm. i have many thoughts <laughs> uh so i want to uh, play two more clips for you guys uh and the first thing is um Kelly talking about, you know, the, the whole thing of working in a franchise, because as she had said before, Hasbro was like really open to everything that she and Sophie Campbell brought to them in terms of character design and, um, and 
the storylines and whatnot. But she also works for a lot of different, you know, franchises, as she mentioned, Captain Phasma. So that's a Star Wars property. She works for Marvel, doing a couple of Marvel books. Um, and so just I want uh I want her to talk a little bit about whether that the easiness with Hasbro is like sort of the same or like what kind of way that she has to work inside of a franchise and still be, you know, her own creative person. Yeah, I've wondered too. So let's hear what she has to say because I'm super curious. Licensors can be incredibly difficult. I was very lucky with Hasbro. And as I worked with more going on, I realized how lucky. Um, But there are a lot of masters to serve in a comic book, especially a licensed comic book that has, you know, not only the publisher in this case, IDW and the licensor Hasbro, um, you know, so I think that you don't always get what you want or you don't always do it successfully. Unfortunately, I mean, you try your best and there's a lot of compromises, right. Of like, how can I serve the, these characters and these fans and this narrative and like still work within these bounds of, what I know the licensor wants or, you know, et cetera. I mean, even just within a comic book, you're serving, uh, you know, in a quote unquote superhero comic. I mean, you're serving a certain master too of that. You need X amount of pages or X percent of it needs to be some sort of action, but then you also need this emotional component. And then, you know, if you're, I mean, I think there's, there's a real art to the 20 page comic because it's a very small, amount of space and you have to create something within those 20 pages that's both enjoyable enough and can stand on its own enough that readers are engaged in it and enjoy it and want to come back for more. But you also have to create sort of these, I don't want to call them false stakes, but you know, they are to a degree that, that, that have cliffhangers and these builds so that people are like, oh no, I have to come back to see what this thing is, you know? And then you have to think about how it's all going to read as a whole for the book market, for the trade paperback market. So there's so many masters to serve on so many levels. And I think, you know, I think it explains sometimes why not all comics are great. And I think it sort of, um, makes it a miracle that so many comics are great (laughs) because there's a lot of balls to juggle on any given comic, you know? It's complicated. What? (laughs) Art is complicated. What? I, yeah, I feel like there are days when I'm like, I would love to write in the world of some franchise that I, I, if somebody came up to me today and they're like, so you want to write a gem in the holograms comic? I'd be like, where do I sign my name in blood? (laughs) to make this happen because I will do it. But at the same time, yeah, that, that seems like it, it also seems like it would be really uh, a little bit harrowing to think about like the people who are like really, really, really fans like me mm-hmm. out there, like going, you did that wrong. Jerrica isn't that way. She would never do that. Rio is the best. How could you? I mean, not that I care what people best. think about Rio, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, I mean, like, and and I would make some different choices. Like, I, I think because I found the gem Jericho Rio polytriad so fascinating, I would have included that in the comics. Um, but but also it's like it it creates a lot of unnecessary 
uh, contrived drama, drama as we were talking yeah. about before. So, so perhaps not, but, but yeah, so it, it's like, you think about that, you think about the, the fans who are really into a thing, um, as well as like just the licensor, as she said, and, oh my goodness, I just, I don't know about, it just seems like a lot, and I I am very impressed by anybody who's able to juggle all those balls. Yeah, you know? agreed. Especially as um, like a first time writer, comic book writer, like going into an existing property and trying to honor that while also like dealing with having the oversight of you know Hasbro and like all of like adding everything, it just compounds it all. But at the same time, I also feel like. Being a fan of things can help in that regard. Um, yeah. You know, being a super fan, because I mean, th- there could be some problems in- inherent in that where you're like, I'm a super fan. I'm super tied to like this one vision of my character and I'm not going to let you like mess with my visions of the character because I know them. I know the man. You can't tell me that Kimber's not bisexual. Um, <laughs> but but I think it it can also really lend a a different energy to a work. I mean, I think about when Doctor Who came back and that show, you know, the reboot, well, it's not a reboot because they just continued on, but like the the new stuff that started up in, you know, 2005, that was written by people who had loved Doctor Who all their lives, you know, and and were really deeply into it and had been involved in other non-TV media with Doctor Who for a long time. And then, like, they got the chance to create some Doctor Who. And while it did generate some problems, I, 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 there are some things that I really feel like I need to sit down and talk to Russell T. Davies about and be like, never do this again. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it created something that was very clearly loved. You know, I can't imagine somebody coming into that not knowing anything about Doctor Who and doing as good a job on it because they very clearly loved this character and this world. And and I felt like that was really important. And it's, you know, I feel like it's the same with what Kelly did with Gem and the Holograms. You know, even though like she hadn't been like as much of a super fan as Gem and the Holograms as I think Russell T. Davies was a super fan of Doctor Who. Um, it's it's still very clear that like her her love and understanding of that world makes, you know, as part of the magic of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for real. So um, she talks a little bit at the end of our interview about like being a a comics fan who then gets to write about the characters that she loved when she was young. Sometimes I feel like, especially with comics, like I'm such a big fan. I feel like I'm going to be exposed at some point as, you know, not a real comic book writer because I'm actually just a fan who like snuck in or something, uh, especially with Rogue and Gambit. It's true. Um, so I, I sometimes think caring too much is almost like this weird thing that I, I feel proud about but I also feel like it marks me as somehow not a professional or something like I'm you know when I'm getting in a fight with my editor over something nine times out of ten it's because I'm upset about you know the character like what are we doing to this character or what are we not doing to this character which is just like an embarrassing thing to say right like what does it have to be like (laughs) I don't know it's bizarre 
I, I don't know. I just, I just feel that imposter syndrome sometimes of I'm too big a fan of this thing to actually be the one in charge of it. I care too much and that gets me in trouble. Uh, I think with Brogan Gambit more than anything I've ever done, it's like a, you know, that's like 16 year old Kelly loved that so much. And like the idea that I would get to chart their future is, it's just so surreal to even imagine that sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? I don't belong here. You know, it's a real imposter syndrome thing, but I hope that that's making me a better writer for them. I mean, I, with Rogan Gambit, we'll see, you know, the first issue that comes out in January, I think I like to think that what I bring to them, what I bring to that table, you know, makes it better. I'm going to predict that it will. (laughs) I was just thinking, is imposter syndrome something any of us get over? Maybe some dudes do. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Maybe. But yeah, I don't know. And and actually, we've talked about having a whole episode talking about imposter syndrome. I think we should. Yeah, I definitely think we should because... Um, but I can, I can see that. I can see how it's just like, how, how are you guys letting me do this? I, (laughs) but, but at the same time, I agree. I think that being, being a real fan of something can make you a better writer for it. I agree. Because it, it means that you are, you're putting a lot of love into it because I've seen what happens with people who don't love a thing write for it like it this i see the tv a lot and i'm just like you don't love these people yep that's why you're doing this to them yep and i think also it introduces like a lot of nuance and you know she was talking about different you know talking about different perspectives like different perspectives and different nuances that you can bring to characters or story arcs or you know whatever is going to make it richer yeah i definitely agree i just I'm really excited to see what she's going to do with Rogan Gambit because, again, I feel like uh, probably her love of Rogan Gambit comes from the same place that mine does, which is that 90s X-Men cartoon mm. that <laughs> so much of my X-Men like ideas and feelings are straight out of that cartoon. And for a while it was on Netflix. I didn't get a chance to watch the whole entire series, but I watched like the first 10 episodes or so. And as I was watching it, it was like the first time that I watched it since I was a kid. And I looked at it and I was like, I had forgotten how many of my specific ideas about how characters should be came from Mm -hmm. this. Um, It was very formative for me as a person who did not read comics when I was a kid. Yep. Yeah. uh, I never, my mom watched it and I never, like a lot of things, like I eventually got into Star Trek and, you know, those things that she watched. I never got into the X-Men cartoon, Um, but I have wondered when it was on Netflix, I thought, oh, I should, I should watch this, you know, now. And I, I never did, but that's, that has formed me. I haven't watched most of the modern movies, um, because they're so far afield from my idea of what the X-Men should be like, and even just like, why isn't Rogue wearing a yellow jumpsuit, you know? Same, same for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Why isn't April O'Neil wearing a yellow jumpsuit anymore? Nobody knows. Right? But no one knows. <laughs> it's that's why they those movies failed because they refused to put April in that jumpsuit. And something about trampolines and, and, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah. I just yeah, we shouldn't we should have a episode. Why reboots fail? Because we your should. creativity is terrible. 
And it is not rude to ingenious. Yep. And you don't. Well, and I, I think a lot of it comes back to that love of the franchise. Like, are you making this to make it? Or are, you, are you making it because you loved it and you want to see you, you want to bring it to more people. Right. And like, did you love it through the lens of a, a, a boob obsessed 12 year old boy? Or did you love it for the character interaction, right? Because that's going to change the way you approach it and whether you put April O'Neil on a trampoline or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just thinking about some of the reboots of the past few years and thinking about how, like, oh, you don't understand this franchise at all. Like, even the GI, the first GI Joe movie was so terrible. And I was like crying because I was like, no, I wanted it to be good. Because even though the G.I. Joe cartoon had some problems, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was still very, like, formative. And there's still, like, a lot of kids who who really, like, only know G.I. Joe through that. Like, they didn't read the comics. And so, you know, it was clear that somebody somewhere was like, well, f- we have to make sure that we put in these things. Because at one point, literally, Duke says, um, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. And then later on, or maybe Flint says that. I can't remember who those people were. At one point, um, Randy Quinn, oh God, whatever. The soldier guy says, now you know, annoying is half the battle. And then later on, Channing Tatum, Channing Tatum mm-hmm. comes back and he's like, we knew and it didn't help. You said that knowing was half the battle. And I was like, I'm leaving this theater right now. <laughs> this is so terrible. <laughs> um, from what I understand, the subsequent G.I. Joe movies were actually better. And maybe that's because they handed it over to somebody who loved it. Yeah, I didn't watch it, any I, of them. Right? It's I, I don't know. I I refused after that yeah. moment because I was like, you just you just literally put knowing it's half the battle in here and you ruined it yep. for everybody. Um, also, there was a Wayans brother and that's rarely a good choice. <laughs> so. So, yeah. But but yes, that, that love, it's I I would say that that's probably 75% of why any reboot would be okay, you know, or move to a different medium, you know, or something along those lines is because somebody has to love it, like actually love it and not just be doing it because they're like, well, reboots are the thing. Yep. I mean, look at My Little Pony. My Little Pony, I never watched My Little Pony as a kid because that show just seemed kind of terrible to me. I loved the new My Little Pony when it first came out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it was, again, it's like somebody who like, Loved something about it. And I, once again, another show that was like originally just made to sell some toys. And now it's Hasbro something toys. Hasbro toys. Hasbro was so, it, it's, it's interesting. Like, I feel like Hasbro doesn't often know what it really has in its toys. They're just like, well, we should probably do another TV show. And then like things blow up and they're like, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> it's like. Which, so that's a lesson for us all, right? Just throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Yes, or at least be, be willing to, like, give, give the toy line a TV show that is helmed by somebody who's awesome. Yeah. Um, because then they can make something awesome out of it that transcends the toys but still sells them. Yep. Agreed. So if you want to follow Kelly on Twitter... Her website is 1979semifinalist.com. One day I'm going to figure out what that means. Yeah. I haven't really thought about that. Um, and her Tumblr is 1979semifinalist.tumblr.com. And in each of those places, you can uh, keep up with her. You can see uh, little glimpses of 
what is going on with the comics that she's writing inside pages covers. Like I said, the cover for Rogue and Gambit number two, just, ah, I love it. It just makes me want to run out and just buy everything. Um, and she also answers some questions, I think on her Tumblr and she's just very active on all social media and she's awesome. So you should definitely check that out. Be sure to buy copies of all her comics, which you can find, I know you can find the um, Gem and the Holograms comics on Comixology. And since Comixology has been working with Marvel and DC, I'm sure that you can find um, all of her other stuff there too, as well as IDW. Like I think they work with all of them. So you should be able to find all of her comics on Comixology if you are not a physical comic person. But if you are, then head on down to your local comic shop and, and buy them up. All right. Well, I think that's it for this time. This was like a jam-packed episode. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed, I, I could talk about jam all day. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so all of those links will be in our show notes as always. I'll also link to like the gym cast if you want to go um, listen to those episodes, watch Jim in the Holograms and listen to those episodes. I'm not sure if they're still on Netflix or not, but they were. Um, and they still are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we've got, we've got conspiracy theories. We have drama. There's action. I mean, it, it's, if you want to, if you want to laugh a lot, the gym, gym cast is, is a show for you. Um, and, um, you can find the podcast on Twitter, uh, originality, um, at originality FM and, uh, me, I'm Aline on Twitter. That's A L E E N. You can find Tempest at tiny Tempest. Um, and until next time I'm still never going to have a script for this Uh, show's over synergy (laughs) of course